Welcome to What Does Eugenics Mean to Us, a podcast from the UCL Sarah Parker Raymond Center. I'm your host, Subhadra Das, and for the last 10 years, I've been researching the history and legacy of eugenics at UCL in the sciences and beyond. In this podcast, I've brought together some brilliant researchers for some fascinating and insightful conversations across the disciplinary divides. Together, we are going to discuss, examine, critique, and explode eugenic thinking. How are racism, ableism, sexism, and class warfare embedded in our ways of thinking about and perceiving other people? What can we do to challenge and dismantle those ideas and structures? As a university and a community of researchers, what does eugenics mean to us? In this series, I've been talking to lots of colleagues and friends about their work here at UCL in order to understand, challenge and deconstruct this university's legacies of eugenics. So far, my own work in this area has been in the history of science, particularly the life and work of the Victorian scientist Francis Galton, and I've mainly looked at him through the lens of critical race and racialization. However, as we've touched upon in other episodes, eugenics was not just about racism. There are, in fact, many other isms that were seeded and continue to grow today, fed by eugenic thinking. In this episode, I want to look at ableism. To do this, I sat down with Nicole Brown and Nora Gross. We talked about ableism, barriers of access at universities like UCL, and what someone like me, who is trying to be an anti-ableist ally, can do to build more anti-ableism into my own work and to acknowledge, confront, and disassemble eugenic thinking. Nicole Brown is a lecturer in education at the Institute of Education here at UCL and the editor of two books, Ableism and Academia, Theorising Experiences of Disabilities and Chronic Illness in Higher Education, and the follow-up, Lived Experiences of Ableism and Academia, Strategies for Inclusion in Higher Education, which is due out in May 2021. Nora Gross is Leonard Cheshire Professor of Disability and Inclusive Development at UCL. A medical anthropologist, Nora works on issues of global health, international development and human rights, with a particular focus on global disability issues. Nicole, can I ask you, what is ableism? Because I think this is something that we often think that we know maybe what it is, but maybe we don't understand really the full extent of it. So... Ableism is one of those terms that's obviously like any other term developed over over a period of time and different scholars put their own slant on the definitions and also it depends on disciplinary conventions as well how actually people interpret the term in itself. But generally I would say that the best explanation for me is that it's a, it's, it's a term that describes all sorts of isms that are non-normative. So it's kind of trying to basically, you've got an expectation of what's normal and what's normative. And as soon as you don't fit within that criterion, that's what ableism is all about. That's the description of what it means to to experience ableism, is that, that, that kind of comparison between what's expected, what's normal, what's standard, and that, you know, we basically don't fit that mould. I mean, to be realistic, not many of us will fit that role of, of being perfectly able-bodied, able-minded, perfectly healthy, pretty, um, you know, like fit, fit, healthy, athletic, and and anything that go, that kind of does not fit with that mold. That's how I would suggest. That's the experience of ableism. 
So what's what's interesting about this is that it goes to demonstrate as a structure of thought to just how broad a church these isms can be, right? Because normal encompasses really so many different things. The way eugenicists historically framed what we think is normal was based on very particular ideas of who they thought should be having children. And so they, they framed normal as cisgendered and heteronormative. And then on things like physical appearance and intelligence, which we know relates directly to racism, but relates to ableism too. Nora, do you have anything to add to that definition? The issue is also that the term is relatively new in terms of it's just kind of coming to the fore now, but it encapsulates a lot of what uh, people have been trying to say for many years, generations actually, around the issue of uh, disability. So it's not just, it's one of those terms that once you hear it, you'll go, aha, that puts together um, uh, what otherwise often has been divided by different types of disabilities, different age groups. When we talk about global disability issues, and remember that uh, uh, roughly 15% of the world's population, 15, uh, the 1 billion people worldwide, according to the uh, World Health Organization, live with a disability. So there's uh, uh, so many different people who fall into the category. Ableism is one term, and a new term, but a very powerful one that brings together people with many different backgrounds, many different uh, types of disabilities, uh, and con con and con and many different experiences. You can talk about an education and employment and social justice. And so it's one of these terms that, again, is very useful to, to move to the next step of um, uh, kind of a broader discussion on, on real issues of concern to us all. I, I totally agree with what you're saying, Nora, but what I find interesting is also with, with the term ableism, it's not just a structural sort of, you know, like non-normative or normative question. It's also that we actually grow up with that internalized version of it. We grow up as, as a person, you're born into some kind of society thinking this is what, you, what your life looks like and this is what you have to expect. And you kind of expect to be able-bodied, able-minded and healthy and pretty and sporty and God knows what. And obviously by the, you know, and you kind of expect to potentially be ill or aching when you're 90 years of age because that's part of, of, of a life trajectory. But obviously, as, as soon as someone is hit with any kind of condition, chronic illness or disability throughout their life, that, that is hitting people's identity as much as, as their experiences because it doesn't fit with that idea of, that we have internalized of, of what's normative, expected and, and brilliant and perfect. I, that's a really important point, but also, um, importantly, there's a, a question that goes along with that, which is, if not, why not? If you're if you don't come up to those norms, then why don't you? And it's uh, it's your job to explain where you where you fall short, as it were. So suddenly the burden is on you, not on the broader society. And that brings us quite neatly onto the next thing I was going to ask you, which is we're starting to have conversations about racism in the academy. We're starting to acknowledge that this is an issue even here at UCL. And so we're starting to think about how the university is racist in terms of its structure. I think it's also fairly safe to say, given the title of a couple of your books, Nicole, that the institution is also ableist. But this is very complex, isn't it? It's, it's, a, it's also about how we perceive, perceive ourselves and also how ableism make, make us think that we are 
the problem that we ourselves need to solve. Absolutely. But I think it's, it's you know, the university itself, even like the building. The, the, so I'm not talking about structurally as in the organisation and the people within it. Even just the architecture, the building itself, that's kind of the symbolic power of it as well. There's this book by um, Jay Dormer, Academic Ableism. And he starts out by describing the typical university building, which is a grand staircase leading up into the Tower of Knowledge. Well, we have got that at UCL as well, obviously, with the grand staircase. And it's pretty, it's beautiful. I love it. But obviously, it means that anyone with with a wheelchair is relegated to the back entrance, to the vehicle entrance, to the rubbish bin lift elevator, you know, whatever it is. Because because that's what the reality is for somebody who is disabled in that kind of environment. And unfortunately, I mean, again, I do appreciate that, you know, the architecture is there and that's not necessarily people's of nowadays fault because that's been there for a long time now I do appreciate that but at the same time we have to ask ourselves well what is the message that we are sending to those people and is there a way of separating out this staircase and creating a new entrance with part of a staircase to to maintain the symbolic power but also creating an accessible route to the building so it's not just about the people on the organization as such and in terms of you know the, the the structure it's actually already the even the building itself that's that's quite a quite a, a powerful reminder of how ableist actually academia is i mean the thing that you're describing suggests to me it, it's almost about uh, widening access the idea that there's an accessible campus that is accessible for everyone because the way things are right now actively leave people out Exactly. And and obviously there is, a, within the, the um, organisation, then we're talking about universal design for learning, for example. So where we are actually trying to be as open to, to different needs and wants as possible. I mean, realistically, and that's the other thing, we do still have to be realistic about this because we cannot fulfil everybody's needs 100% of the time. That's just not possible. There are so many needs that are actually conflicting and and that's one of the problems that we are ha- we are finding as well. So, for example, as we are sitting here on a, on a computer screen with a few people in the room, there are the kind of people that find too many videos going on at the same time really difficult and distracting, and and they suffer from sensory overload. So, ideally, for those people, all of us would have our videos switched off. But then there are the other people amongst us who are hard of hearing who will need to have this video on so that they can lip read and that's the problem here you know these are conflicting needs and you can't actually kind of say well this need is more important than that need in a way you have to but that's trying to find a consensus and trying to find a compromise so yes 90% of the time you can meet 90% of the needs of 90% of the people but it's never going to be a hundred and that needs to be said as well. And I, I, I couldn't agree more. It's, it, it'll never be 100%, but you can set up adaptations to make it to be as inclusive as possible. Um, I think an important issue also is that we pose this as a problem often. And it shouldn't be a problem. It's really a question of it. Uh, I'd like to think of it as enlightened self-interest. It's not a question of, 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 of making special allowances for people who, who aren't contributing. The issue is that, you know, we've got a lot of problems in the world. We can use as many people as possible contributing solutions right now. And that, to my mind, is what universities should be doing so that the more we can uh, kind of address things like racism 
and ableism that keep people from being part of the solution, um, or people with a variety of backgrounds that can add to our insights, then we all lose. And if we frame it as taking advantage of people's abilities as opposed to problems, then I think that we already have a, we start with a very different conversation. I agree with you. Can I just ask you a question? One of the things that I always say is that we should try and, and actually bank on the strength in numbers. So by, like you said, you know, the more people we have within that, the, 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 the easier is then actually to change things because we've got strength in numbers. But at the same time, I have been criticized for, for saying things like that because it kind of lumps people's experiences together when actually every experience is individual. And I'm, I, I again, I totally understand that my experience is not your experience is not the next person's experience I totally understand that but in terms of trying to push for change I still believe that we actually do need the strength in numbers and try to to kind of bring together as many experiences as possible so can I just ask how do you stand um, on that what what do you think about that for my part, I think that a lot of what we do in academia is we take lots of experiences and we abstract to another level. I'm a social scientist. I'm an anthropologist, actually. So we look at the individual and things like oral history is very important. But so is the next level. We don't have to. It doesn't have to be either or. To my mind, you know, individual experiences often feed into what we can say about group experiences or the breadth of experience. So again, I think part of the a problem with a lot of these discussions is we, we push people into certain, it's a problem, it's not a problem, it's either the individual or the group. In normal life, we seem to be able to adapt to a range of things depending on what the needs are. There are some things that apply to everybody. For example, human rights apply to everybody. You know, no matter who it is, those rights should be universal. There are other things that are really unique experiences, but we do this all the time in all of academia. We, you know, we talk about literature and then we talk about specific authors, for example. We talk about all of history and then we talk about the works of Herodotus. It doesn't, we don't have to, we don't have to make decisions in lots of other fields, so we shouldn't have to be pushed into a corner with this. I'm liking this. I think it's it, it's interesting for me to hear, but it's also, I'm sure, going to be interesting for our listeners to hear just how much of this is about collaboration and listening to each other and trying to work out what the what the right answer and kind of like the best thing is to do. But before we try to solve the problem, I want to get a clearer picture of the problem. What I'm hearing from you is about how there are structural barriers, both physical barriers, but also societal and cultural barriers that are shaped against some people. I'm interested to find out what was it that shaped the barriers that people are coming up against today? There's a range of things, so I can't, it's all of history. It's a lots of, if we're talking about ableism, we're talking about assumptions of what people with uh, with a range of disabilities can and cannot do. And But we're also talking about not just what they uh, may be limited by in terms of disability, but very importantly, we're talking about a lifetime of experiences that kind of, it's a feedback loop. So if you're born with a physical impairment, for example, or you have polio at a young age and you can't walk, then you often, in many countries, you still are denied basic education, elementary school education, or grade school or high school education. So by the time we get to universities, oddly enough, people who we otherwise, you know, who otherwise could contribute to things have been left out of this entire loop of education, social inclusion, um, civic involvement. And so we look for, it's not just one thing, it's a lifetime 
of uh, it's like a you know like a death by a thousand small cuts. It, you're denied one thing after another, and often starts very early in life. We're, we're talking right now about ableism, but you can also talk about racism in the same way, where advantages, where opportunities, where inclusion is you're just left out, and so by the time you come to be an adult, you've already suffered a range of uh, uh, issues, exclusions that are completely unnecessary, but that has deprived you of the background that uh, gets you to the point where you can be a fully participating person in your society with the same benefits uh, and uh, advantages as many other people. I'm looking at the, the same situation, but from the experience of the person who is becoming acquiring and um, becoming disabled, acquiring some kind of disability or, or chronic illness or condition, whatever, throughout their life. In that case, it goes that little step further. So it's not just that it's chipped away, you know, the, the injustices and all of that on, on your lived experience. It also means that within the current situation of, of higher education, for example, people don't feel comfortable to say, I have got whatever disability or chronic illness because they know that doing so would push them into the disadvantaged minority group and they don't want to do that. So there is a, a serious issue here it, and that's an attitudinal issue for the person to disclosing but also it's quite a, a, a bad sign if nobody feels that they can actually disclose. So it is an attitudinal problem within higher education as a sector as well. That obviously there are there is this discrimination, there is the disadvantage. I know that I have got X, Y, Z, whatever it is, but I can't really say that. I have to hold back. I'm lucky enough to pass as somebody without disabilities because my disability is invisible. But that what what, what does that tell us about the kind of situation that we're dealing with? But what what does that tell us about the society we are in? And I think that's the the, the at the heart of everything. That's that's really quite shocking to me i mean in my in my experience the reality of this is is that people who have got some kind of chronic illness or condition they will basically come up with this cost benefit analysis of what the costs are of disclosing their conditions and admitting under quotation marks admitting their faults and their weaknesses to the public against the benefit of doing that so obviously the cost is the stigma, the, the, the fact that you're potentially discriminated against, the fact that you are not able to, to be part of the conversation in the same way that a non-disabled person would be. But the benefit, what's the benefit? I mean, if there's no real benefit, then what's the point in actually disclosing in the first place? Eugenics, particularly eugenics in terms of not, not simply some of the scientific ideas that were involved with it at the turn of the 20th century, but also the, the fact that those ideas extended beyond the realm of science into politics and into the ways in which society has been organised, that eugenic thinking is, is to some degree framing these barriers, are they, is it not? Or, and in what kind of ways, I'm also interested to know in what kind of ways those ideas are still with us. Eugenics, which I know you've done a number of things in this series in terms of it, it, the scientific, uh, in, uh, we could call it the pseudoscientific at this point, ideas of eugenics were very problematic. They didn't, uh, you know, they coalesced in the 19th century and up 
through the 1920s, 1930s, and they became part of mainstream science and popular thinking in many countries, obviously um, after World War II, especially after the Nazis' use of eugenics in eliminating millions of people. It, it, it became less, uh, less fashionable science, but it didn't leave the scientific community. We still, even if we don't label things eugenics, and even if the popular press doesn't label things eugenics, and that's in terms of both racism and ableism, it's still very much with us. And it's a real problem because people think they know. They make assumptions based on incorrect thinking about uh, people's abilities. They rank people in terms of their their heritage or their disability. And we now know that all this kind of thinking is both problematic, it's destructive, and it's getting in the way of moving forward. So it's, it's a real problem. And again, it's still very much with us in many sciences and many, many disciplines. And it certainly is when it comes to the, both the social sciences and medical sciences. And it's something that we need to be keenly aware of. Um, and certainly when it comes to issues like deciding who lives, who dies, who gets appropriate medical care, even though we now should have human rights laws in place and the UN Declaration on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, we still look at what we just found out with COVID, the, the decision in terms of the people with disabilities died at, in, in all countries at rates much higher than people who are non-disabled, and it had little to do with their disabilities in many cases cases, but rather where the allocation of medical resources was going. That's really scary stuff. So eugenics, regrettably, is still with us. And I know there's an effort now to kind of rethink and kind of identify uh, eugenic thinking and kind of root it out from the sciences. But I think it's still a, a real problem. And it's going to be with us for many years to come, especially if we don't address it. I think one of the problems with eugenics is also that there is um, a very clear idea associated with what, what eugenics is and does. And sometimes I feel that contemporary understanding doesn't actually highlight that, that, that there is something there that was at the time of interest and like Nora said, fashionable as well. And at the time, this made sense, and now it doesn't. And and that's for some reason that there there is a development that in the contemporary understanding that hasn't really happened. I don't think. I don't think that people have realised how you know certain things. I mean, go in and out of fashion within sciences as well, and that that this is now a time to actually get rid of the idea of hierarchy of disabilities, and yet it's it's still quite prevalent, unfortunately. So the more I learn about these ideas and the more I learn about how the world is set up and how it works, um, and, and this happened to me when I was learning about anti-racism too, the more I realise that these ideas have been, that I've been educated into a way of thinking or indoctrinated really um, is probably a more accurate way to describe it. In your experience, are people now more aware of ableism and the kind of barriers that disabled students and staff are facing? There are certain conditions that are um, easier to, to disclose than others. I mean, schizophrenia, for example, is one that's really difficult. Do, would you like to be the academic, that's the poster boy or poster girl of schizophrenia? Probably not, because our environment doesn't allow for that. 
also because schizophrenia as a condition is massively misunderstood. So it's, and, and, and again, there are public misconceptions about it that TV and media and films reinforce stereotypes in ways that are totally incorrect. The same is with narcolepsy, actually. Narcolepsy is a sleep condition where people are getting tired and have got fatigue. But in how it's represented in the films and, and novels is that people drop asleep from one second to another. And whilst that may happen for some, it doesn't by far happen for everyone. So again, there is a, you know, all these misconceptions that are not really helping that situation. And that's why this hierarchy of disability is happening. And then obviously, again, like I said earlier, the, would you like to be the poster boy or poster girl of schizophrenia? That's what happens. So once you stand out as being non-normative and different in whatever way, then you do end up with additional labor, additional requirements, additional tasks. You are then the poster person for the um, EDI committee, for the interview panel, whatever it is. So again, there is that element. Things also compound. So are you disabled? Well, Yes. Are you dis- are, is your life easier as a disabled man than a disabled woman? Yes. In, in, you know, certainly um, I work a lot on issues of people with disabilities in low and middle income countries. And, you know, a lot of uh, the work I do, it compares uh, not just disabled versus non-disabled, but disabled men versus disabled woman, women, for example. Or, you know, uh, if you're uh, disabled and a woman and a member of an ethnic and minority community, or, or uh, uh, a disabled and and you're a woman and you're a member of an ethnic or minority community in many commun- in many parts of the world, including here in the UK, and you happen to live in a, a rural area as opposed to an urban area, your chances of getting an education or equal access to health care or the right to vote are significantly less than even a disabled man from uh, the majority ethnic group or living in an ur- uh, urban area. So we need to kind of think about these terms, not just in terms of easy labeling, but also the complexity when it comes down to to actual human lived experiences. I think that here at UCL, we're starting to get better at talking about the inherent racism of eugenics. And that's the way that we're going to tackle those problems. But we've seen that ableism intersects with racism to keep people in their place. It marginalizes people. How can we better incorporate ableism into critical thinking about eugenics? I think at the heart of everything is to be aware and to listen. And I think that's that's what, what is really required. Everything else will fall into place after that, as far as I'm concerned. Because you cannot, like we said earlier, you cannot lump everybody's experience into one big category. It just doesn't work that way. There may be some people, again, you know, their lived experiences are different. You may have somebody who, who is autistic or has got a diagnosis of, of, of ADHD, but that person and their, that person's experience is quite different from the next person who is also autistic or has also got a diagnosis of ADHD and how they want to be treated, how they want to be talked to, how they want to be approached is very different. Especially, I mean, I'm I'm looking here specifically at the deaf community as a person who's hard of hearing myself. I'm not comfortable using the word deaf. I keep using hard of hearing Although technically I am profoundly deaf and, and I don't, I'm struggling to, 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 to kind of identify as somebody who's deaf. Now, if somebody calls me deaf, I don't take that, I don't take offense to that. 
but another person might. And that's why it's really important to talk to people about that. For some people, being deaf is a, a being deaf with a capital D. So it's actually, this is part of the, who they are. It's part of the identity. So to not call those people deaf would be rude. So it's really about talking to the individual experiences, being aware that there are different experiences and then trying to listen to what people say and if somebody says I want you to call me autistic then do even if it even if you don't like the term that's not you know it's not for you to decide the person gets to decide and I think that's that's at the heart of everything as far as I'm concerned. I'll just add to that all you can do is treat each person as an individual and treat them with the same courtesy and dignity that you'd want to be treated yourself. In terms of finding labels, I've been around for a while now. And so for, you know, there are all these terms on what's the best term for disability, what the, and these things cycle through and they're, you know, rejected and we, we can over, you know, we can overdo it in terms of what the right terms are. We don't seek a term for every person we meet. We usually take them, you know, one, you know, as individuals and um, people with disabilities should be no different. Nicole Brown, Nora Gross, thank you so much for joining me today. You've been listening to What Does Eugenics Mean to Us? A podcast from the Sarah Parker Raymond Centre at UCL. Your host was me, Subhadra Das, and the music was by the Blue Dot Sessions. The producer was Karis Bradley.